Beloved, if you have your Bibles, please open to 1 Peter chapter 1 as we behold God's living word. It's not a new thing that the people of God have faced affliction from secular society. In fact, the people of God have always felt some sort of persecution from darkness. Satan himself rebelled against God, as the word tells us. Cain murdered the first righteous man in the scriptures who was Abel. The nation sought to destroy Israel, and then Israel used the nations to kill the Son of God. And those who were formed in Christ after the resurrection, that is the church, have been facing persecution for the past 2,000 years. And the book of First Peter serves as a curriculum for suffering Christians. And so it's a needed book and a helpful book for us to look at as a body. For context, Christians in Asia Minor were in difficult times when this letter was written to them. Because they were Christian, society had begun to reject them and ostracize them as we will see throughout this letter. Uh, they were uh, slandered and sabotaged uh, even in their own families, by their own society, because they bore the name of Christ. So Peter writes a letter to them to encourage them and to remind them of their living hope. They were born of God. And this is to be a great encouragement to them while they are in exiles, in, or while they are in exile. Now, these saints were ridiculed for their faith, but they had not yet been persecuted physically for the faith. Uh, typically, persecution happens in, in three steps. First, it's kind of visible, or excuse me, verbal assault, uh, uh, ostracization by, by name calling and by names that are said to Christians. Then there's some side of, sort of financial penalty that's uh, accompanied with it, uh, either an increase in taxes or losing of tax, tax status. Uh, and then the third step would be a physical suffering. Uh, the church here was in that first phase, that, that verbal phase of persecution. Uh, we see even today that many in the church are at that third phase, uh, suffering physically because of the name of Christ. Seven years ago in 2016, some 90,000 people were persecuted physically because of the name of Christ. That's the most ever recorded in the history of the church to date that we have compiled. Now we recognize that God's word is always relevant in every society to every people for all time. But if I could say this, I do think there is current similarities between the church in America today and the church that Peter is writing to here. And so I, I'm assuming that this is going to give us some uh, encouragement on a deep level as we work through this book. The Christian in America today is outside of society looking in. Uh, more distinct from society than we were even 30 years ago, even 20 years ago, yes, even 10 years ago. 
We are truly on the outside looking in. It used to have cultural benefits uh, to being a Christian. There used to be cultural benefits, uh, but there's, there's no more cultural benefits. There, there are persecutions and afflictions that are beginning to take place. Some 30 years ago, uh, 90% of the culture identified as Christians, 90%. Uh, today, that's 63%, and I would argue that that is liberal. Uh, as the church becomes more and more marginalized, I presume this will decrease more and more in the days ahead. And, and you might be asking, Blair, why do, you, why do you say that? Well, the more we stand for the exclusivity of Christ as the only king in the, in the universe and the only means by which one man can be saved... We are going to feel the marginalizations on society because the world religions are beginning to agree more and more and be tolerant of each other more and more. The more we stand for God's design for biblical marriage that's designed between a man and a woman and biblical sexuality, the cultural will marginalize us more and more. Uh, the more that we stand for the sanctity of life and the unborn, recognizing that every child is conceived inside of sovereign care of God and made in his image, society will continue to marginalize us. The more we uh, stand for God's design of two genders and how it's outside of God's will that uh, one can change their physiology to go to another gender or not be a gender at all, we will feel the effects of society more and more. We're already being considered unloving and intolerant. In fact, tolerance is what is defined as loving today. And so the more we stand for these things that Scripture reveals the more we will be marginalized, considered old-fashioned, and yes, even evil to the outside world. In fact, one of our very own just two weeks ago lost her job because she wasn't going to stand for some of the ideology in today's time because she's a Christian and a part of this body. This is the reality of where we are in America, and we used to, to be living in the Bible Belt, and I would even say the Bible Belt buckle, but that has changed quickly if we were to be honest. There is a mark on Christians in our country right now, and so this, this book is very revel, uh, prevalent and, and relevant for us, but I want to remind you, beloved, that this letter is gonna show us that God uses affliction to purify his church and to bring glory to his name. It's not that there's more, or excuse me, it's not that there's less Christians than there were 30 years ago. It's that true Christianity is beginning to rise up in the culture. Uh, uh, the, the wheat and the tares are being separated and those who are, are in the name of God by salvation are going to be more and more marginalized. Now, why this book right now? It's not just to compare the similarities uh, to this culture and that culture. It's actually much deeper than that. We chose this book because we want to prepare you for exile, we want to encourage you in the exile that we're already in, 
but we also want to prepare you for more exile. Yes, maybe even suffering because of the name of Jesus. So beloved, we need to prepare our hearts, recognizing that we are his people. And the deep encouragement that's going to come from this letter is that he is with us even while we are in exile. We're gonna cover a plethora of topics from holiness and obedience to the pure and unadulterated gospel, to the church, to the nations, to faithful households, to suffering, all of which God is working and moving amongst his people to purify a people for himself. All the prosperity gospel junk that has infiltrated the United States in the last decades is going to be exposed as affliction comes. What happens is the church that buys into the prosperity gospel begins to bend their beliefs because they don't have a category in which prosperity and affliction coexist. But God has always allowed affliction to infiltrate his people so that they would know who he is in the midst of such suffering. I say this boldly, this prosperity gospel that has probably in, even infiltrated our own hearts at times, and I say that even here as a pastor growing up in the Dallas-Fort Worth area, uh, is, it's, that prosperity gospel is unchristian. It doesn't bend to what the word says. It bends to what the culture says because it's built on the ideology that man, or excuse me, that God wants man to prosper. And God does want man to prosper, but his way of prospering is very different than man's way of prospering. We see in God's word that he tells us that we will be rejected. John 15, 18. Jesus tells his disciples, fear not, the world hated me first before it hated you. We see in Acts 14 and in Romans 8 that we enter the kingdom of God through suffering and afflictions. That's the way in which we are sanctified. So as the people of God, my encouragement to you as we begin this letter is to hold fastly to the word of God because it teaches us who God is and who we are in light of who God is. Why did Peter write this letter to the churches? Well, he wants them to know who they are. He wants them to know what their actual identity is as the people of God. That's the basic motive of the letter. And we get that in chapter five, verse 12, where he says, by Silvanus, a faithful brother as I regard him, I have written briefly to you exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. He tells us in 512 why he's writing the letter. And he's, we're going to unpack over the next many months what that grace is. But he wants them to understand the grace. He wants them to understand his sovereignty in all things so that they would stand firm while they're exiles and suffering. So he starts with some pretty major theology to kind of root everything in. And I've been praying this week that it would be clear and helpful to us and encouraging to us as a congregation. And so the main point of our passage today, at least I think it is, I've changed it about four times, but I think it's this. Our identity is rooted in the triune God. Even while we're in exile, because God has elected us to be his people. And we're going to unpack what that means. Uh, 
So I, my, when my mom used to drive our family around in the neighborhood at night, I would always ask, do I have to put on my seatbelt? We're not going very far. And uh, she would sometimes say yes, sometimes say no. Uh, We're not going very far today in the text, only two verses, but I'm still going to encourage you to put on your seatbelt, all right? Because this, uh, this has some teeth to it, but it's, it's meant to give your heart some deep, deep encouragement. So look with me in verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Well, right there in verse one, we see who is writing the letter. It's the apostle Peter, who is an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Peter is someone who gives all of Christendom, all of the church, great encouragement throughout history and even now because he seems to react to situations much like we do. Uh, We see him show fear and faith at times. We see him show valor, uh, valor and also tripped up by failure. He is the first of the apostles to confess that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. He's also the one who slices off Malchus's ear, the high priest's servant, because he's afraid. Uh, The one who has come to take over the kingdom is about to be whisked away and arrested by Rome and by, by the Jews. And so he slices off the ear, still not recognizing that Christ's kingdom comes by suffering and conquering death, not through military power. He's also the one who denies Jesus three times, even by a teenage girl. He withers, but then he's restored after the resurrection by Jesus who comes to him and asks three times, Peter, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? He says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He says it three times back. Then feed my lambs, tend to my sheep, feed my sheep. Jesus restores Peter, shows him great mercy after the resurrection. He's the one that saw Jesus baptized. He sees the Father's voice affirm who he is, the Spirit descend on him. He's a witness of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. He he witnessed the resurrected Jesus and he was present at the ascension where he was commissioned to go out into the church or into the world and make disciples of all nations as a pillar of the church. He was one of the 12 and he was with our Lord for three years. We see in Luke 22, Jesus says to Peter, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. What a terrifying thing to hear from the Lord. He said, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned, strengthen your brothers. Feed my lambs is essentially what he says again in John 21. And Jesus prayed, and guess what, beloved? Peter did not fail. He strengthened the church, his brothers. And that's what he's doing right here in this letter is he's strengthening the church, the brothers. He served as a pillar of the church. He preached boldly, even after hearing he was gonna be a martyr in John 21. He was gonna have to suffer for Christ. He still was bold before him. 
and before God as he brought the gospel to the nations. We ultimately see through church history that he was crucified downward, upside down for the name of Jesus because he, he uh, didn't think he was worthy to be crucified the same way that Christ was crucified. We see this by historians like Eusebius and Tertullian. This happened in Rome in AD 67, and, and that's actually the very place that he's writing this letter from. We see in chapter five that he's writing from Babylon. That's the name that he gave to Rome as he writes from a prison cell to the church. He's writing from Rome that they would know who they are in God. Now, liberal scholars have debated whether or not that Peter wrote this letter. Uh, they think the Greek is too skilled for a common fisher, fisherman from Galilee to handle uh, the language like this. But we do see, practically speaking, though he wasn't educated formally, as Acts 4.13 tells us, he would have been bilingual. Any fisherman, any, anybody from the Galilee region would have both known Aramaic and Greek. We, we, history does show us and teach us that. We also see that Silvanus, or maybe your translation says Silas, Silas was there to help him compile the letter, and he would have also known the language. But beloved, even more than that, Though he might have not, have not have had traditional, formal, rabbinic training the way that his, some of his Jewish peers would have had, he walked with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords for three years. Now, if you, you get your doctorate in theology, a lot of guys brag today like, who did you study with? And we, you know, we all kind of tell who we studied with. Uh, Peter's like, I study with God face to face. He's qualified and the Spirit brought him along to author this. And, and then the question comes, then who did he author it to? And, and the text tells us that in verse 1, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Writing to the dispersion of these provinces, this would have been modern day Turkey. This is modern day Turkey today. He's writing from Rome to these people. Now, when Claudius, the emperor of Rome, served in the 40s, this would have been AD 40, uh, he expelled Jewish Christians from Rome because of their disturbance in the city because of the name of Christ. And so what he did was he repopulated or relocated these Jewish Christians between AD 41 and AD 49. And so when this letter is written, probably in the early 60s or mid 60s, the church would have grown and would have also included by this time Gentiles. Uh, they're exiles twice over. They're removed not only from Italy, but he's also using this language of exile in a theological sense, they're not in their homeland, and they're also not yet in the kingdom of heaven. Now, we know that Peter had the Jewish hand of ministry. We see this in Galatians 2, while Paul had the Gentile hand of ministry. But as this letter is written in the 60s, we see that there's both Jewish references because of its kind of historical theology connection to the Old Testament, which would mean that there's Jews present that would understand that. But then we also see that there's language, like in chapter two, for example, verse 10, that once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. 
That's only language that he would use for a Gentile. So this is a mixed bag of nuts in the church, kind of like we are today from different nations, different backgrounds that he is writing to. And the theological reality that I want to bring to our attention today is our theological exile. Uh, we are Christians and we are not purposed for this world alone. Now, some of us understand exile better than others. If you are from another country and now you're living in a country that you are not from, you understand exile better than someone like myself that has never lived in another country. But the theological reality here is that we are only here for a temporary time. Uh, going to live with God for a much longer, more eternal time than we will ever be here in this world. And I want to remind us today that the people of God have no lasting city. This is Hebrews 13. We are citizens from another kingdom, Philippians 3. And so we might not be exiles the same way they were exiles, but we are exiles in the exact same way that they are exiles in that we are only here for a time. Suffering only lasts for a moment. And so we can relate with them as exiles. Now these exiles, they were rejected by their, by their own country. Uh, they were not selected to stay. They were rejected and sent out. But what he's telling them here is you might be rejected by man, but you are selected by God. You are selected by the living God. Look at that little phrase, elect exiles. And that's gonna be our main point today. God's people are elect exiles. Now I know that this can be a controversial topic in the Bible. But beloved, I, I want to encourage you in the reality that the chosen are smothered in every book of the Bible. It is God's language to his people. This is how he talks to them. We see in Colossians 3 that we are God's chosen ones. We see in Ephesians 1, 4, God chose us in Jesus before the foundation of the world. 2 Timothy 1, 9, God calls us his own in Christ Jesus before the foundation of the earth. Romans 9 and 10 and 11 speak of this language all the time. Beloved, I would encourage you to go read these passages for yourself and be encouraged by how God works. The doctrine of election affirms that for purposes known only by God himself, God chose those who he would save. Not based on anything that we did or didn't do, but based on his good pleasure. Uh, John 10, 26 kind of helps us maybe unknot this a little bit because uh, it, it can be difficult to understand. But listen to what Jesus says to the Pharisees. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. You do not believe because you are not my sheep. He does not say you are not my sheep because you don't believe. He says, you are not my sheep because, or you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Election means to select or to choose out. 
The reason you know God, beloved, is because God first know, knew you and chose you before the foundation of the world. He selected us out of humanity uh, despite knowing that we would not choose him. Despite knowing that we would reject his word in the garden, despite knowing that we would be at enmity with him, even responsible for killing his son, all the ways that we would sin against him, he chose a people that he would redeem and regenerate, bring to faith, forgive, justify, sanctify, and ultimately glorify through Jesus Christ. This is through God's sovereign grace alone. Nothing we ever did. Uh, no, no reason at all other than his good pleasure. He, he did this out of love and out of care. Uh, this birth took place in the deep councils of eternity and we know nothing about it until it was revealed to us in the word of God. That's why we had consciousness one day of who God is. We came to know this. It's quite profound and it's rooted in God's purpose and we'll never understand the purpose. We can't get there. There's a lot of mystery surrounding it and we can't untangle those mysteries. We don't have the ability to do that. It's rooted in his love. We know that God is loving. It's rooted in his glory. It's, it's purposed in his wisdom. And so what we do is we explain God's words the best we can by the help of the Spirit as we learn who God is. Now, now there's a few verses that help us understand this. And this is just, this is just a few. Romans 8.28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, listen, according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 7. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ. Why? According to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glory and grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved who is Christ. 2 Thessalonians 2, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved uh, by the Lord, because God chose us as the first fruits to be saved. 2 Timothy chapter 1, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. That's just a few I really struggled with this idea when I was 24. I used, in fact, in college, I used to argue people like red, until I was red in the face, like, no, I chose God. I remember when I did it. And then God just began to open up his word and just let it breathe in my life. And God becomes much bigger 
It began to see that he's working even before time began. And he chose me and he helped me recognize that he chose me and I wasn't even worthy of it. It was accompanied with a realization that I was dreadfully sinful. And I knew that since I was a little boy, but somewhere in my 20s, I realized that I was actually unholy. And I deserve to be crushed back into the dust. If we could go into the dust since we just came out of Ecclesiastes. But he in his mercy called forward his people to know him. And there's a, there's a great There's a great comfort that comes along this. If he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that means he'll never unchoose us. Because he's the same God yesterday, today, and forever. If I choose, I'm pretty sure I can change my mind. But God cannot change his mind. There's such people. Here's the question though. Why would Peter start with this major doctrine Elect exiles. Why would he just call them exiles? Is it to bring controversy like this doctrine often does? No. Rather to bring fidelity to their hearts. Deep encouragement of who God is and his intended purpose for his people. Peter's pastoring them. His intention is to remind the church that though the world rejects them, They have been chosen by God to be his people. And this truth is to help see them through their affliction. What what peace, what comfort. Election elicits praise and deeply encourages. He's, He's like I said, he's pastoring them and they're suffering. He's reminding them that their election is a deep encouragement. Therefore, they can stand firm in the faith. You belong to the Lord before you were a particle. And you will long after you are. Because the soul returns to him. I know that this doctrine involves a mystery and we're not gonna entangle all of those mysteries today. Controversy too. But beloved, when it's, when it's given in scripture, It's not meant to bring forward controversy, but rather hope, encouragement, fidelity, unity, perseverance. It it, it invokes within us peace and joy and confidence. I would say humility, knowing that you don't deserve to be chosen, yet you're chosen based on nothing that you have done. Worship and, and sacrifice happen. We get to read passages like Philippians 1.6 that he who began a good work in you is faithful to complete it. That, that verse is about us but has actually nothing to do with us. He who began the work is faithful to complete the work. Have you ever considered this? Because it's actually in the scriptures, John 6, John 10, John 17, that the elect from one standpoint, are the Father's gift to the Son to be his church, his bride, his glory. We're not the center of the story. The Son is the center of the story. And so he chose his people to give to his Son. And then Jesus came, as we see in John 6 and 10, and 15 and 17 and all these other verses 
that those whom the Father has given eternal life have been given to the Son and Jesus came to redeem those. It's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing love story between a husband and his wife. There's another round of sovereignty discussed in verse two, buckle up. God is not only over our exile and our election and our suffering, but he is also sovereign through our salvation. Uh, Look at this, we have a Trinitarian identity in verse two. According to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. So you're chosen, and then Peter gives these four modifiers of what it looks like to be elect exiles. So he's explaining how this election takes place. Look at that first one. There's four of them, elected according to God's foreknowledge. God's foreknowledge is a causative concept. Foreknown means foreloved. I have intimately known you. Uh, deeply know who you are. This doesn't mean you don't exercise faith and don't have responsibility with your actions. We're gonna talk about that all throughout the book of 1 Peter. There's a glorious mystery there and uh, we walk in tension of that all the time. But what he's saying is that God knew us intimately. Romans 11 said, Paul asserts that God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. That's why Jesus says in Matthew 7, depart from me, for I never knew you. I don't know who you are. You weren't mine from the beginning of uh, of time. And it echoes in Amos chapter three, verse two, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. We even see that Jesus was foreknown by the Father as the one who would bring salvation. This is 1 Peter 2. Verse 20, chapter one, verse 20. We'll get into this here in a couple of weeks. Beloved, this is intimate knowledge. This is, this is the way a husband knows his wife. Deep uh, understanding of who one is. Before you ever were, God loved you. Before you ever did anything against God, he loved you and chose you. That's an amazing an amazing thought and it's quite different than foresight. Some theologians say that God looked through the hallway of time and he knew who would choose him. That that would be man selecting God. But it is God who chooses man. And we see this in Deuteronomy 7. The chosen people of God. He says the very same thing in Romans chapter 13. We need help in understanding this. But if it's true, and Peter seems to think it is, and he was with the Lord, then whatever we go through in this life, know that God is holding you in the palm of his hand. If he knew you before you were, he will be with you every step of the way, and he will bring it all to completion. And look how he continues to do that. The second one is this. You were elected for the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. Beloved, the church is consecrated by the Spirit. A people set apart, regenerated by the Holy Spirit, as it says in Titus chapter three, verse five. 
That means the Spirit came to us, opened up our understanding, and allowed us to see the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Jesus says in John 6, that no one can come to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Uh, that Greek word for draw is actually drag. Spirit draws us, drags us to him. Our faith is experienced by the Spirit from beginning to end. He is the one who makes us unique. He assures us of our pardon. He transforms us. It says the Spirit transforms us, 2 Corinthians 3, into the same image of Jesus. This is the work that the Spirit is doing in our lives as Christians. And we have been chosen for the Spirit to do this work in our lives. He gave us new birth, John 3. He comforts us in a hostile world, 1 Thessalonians 1.6. The Spirit provides peace and overflowing hope, Romans 15.13. The Spirit convicts of sin, John 16.18. Uh, there's an increase of faith and love because of the Spirit, 2 Thessalonians 1.3. And what Peter is doing here is he's reminding the church while they're in exile that the Spirit is a new gift to God's people. The old people who were in exile the first time, right in Babylon, they could not fulfill the law. They were of the flesh. In fact, it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3 that, that the old law was a covenant of death. But then the Spirit comes. In Acts chapter 2. And it, be, and it begins to do a new work in the people of God. And it turns hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. As it separates the people of God from a people who are not of God. And this new covenant gift which is given to us in the blood of Christ. Which we're going to participate here momentarily. One of the great gifts of this new covenant is the Holy Spirit. We've been chosen before time to know God and, and to be sanctified by the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is sent from Jesus uh, and he proceeds from the Father, as it says in John 15, 26 through 27. The third reason we're elected is to be obedient to Jesus Christ. So we are chosen to obey. We have been loved so that we would be obedient to God. We should have fruit in our lives that affirm that we actually know God and have been known by God. Second Peter 1, 2, which is the book we'll do right after 1 Peter, it says, make every effort to make your calling and election sure. We are called to be obedient, not to achieve righteousness, but because righteousness has been achieved for us through Jesus. But we've been saved to be obedient, a people who hate sin and who love God and the things of God. Listen to what it says in Philippians 2, 12 through 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Listen to this, this little gar clause in verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. 
God is working about his salvation in us as his people. Through the spirit of God, the obedience to Christ, the glory of his name. Ephesians 2 says, we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Listen to this. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. This is our identity. This is our hope. Grudem says that what the Father plans, the Spirit empowers and Christ receives. And then finally, and quickly, elected, uh, we are elected to be sprinkled by the blood of Jesus. The benefits of Christ are applied to the doorposts of our hearts as Christ has applied his blood to our lives and death and hell have passed over us. And so we are his. And this has actually always been the case. Consider what it says in Exodus chapter 24. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and he built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now this is right after the law has been given. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood and threw it against the altar. Verse seven is crucial. Then he took the book of the covenant and he read it in the hearing of the people. And he said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people. Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Blood confirmed the covenant that the people made to be obedient. And that's exactly what Christ has done. He's, he's, he's saved us and he's called us to be a people, to be obedient to his name. So for those who have trusted in Christ for salvation, you are a new covenant people. You're not sprinkled with blood from bulls and goats. You're sprinkled by the blood of the Lamb of God. And Peter is reminding the people of all of God's past works, all that God has done in this Trinitarian salvation, all that God has done in knowing them before they were ever born, knowing that they would be in exile. And he's saying, hey, take heart. Your story is still being written. You're still in progress right now as my people. And we're gonna need to know that as we venture into this letter. You're chosen by the Father. You're sanctified in the Spirit. And you have been sprinkled by the blood of the Son. That's who you are, church family. That is who you are. No matter what the world tells you, no matter what the world throws against us about being intolerant or unloving, we are the people of God who are showing actual love based on the sacrifice that Christ has provided us. And that's who we are. And then look how he ends it. He says, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. He, think about what he's saying. He's like, you're suffering. May grace and peace be multiplied to you. He hunkers them down in God's work. 
at the very beginning of this letter so that grace and peace would overwhelm them while they're in exile. And I pray that it does the very same for us. Quickly, four quick takeaways. This isn't even applications, four quick takeaways. Find comfort in knowing that God has made you his people. I can't, I can't make many things with my hands. I'm just grateful that he made us a people for himself. Take comfort in that while we walk in this life. If the sister is here who lost her job, take comfort that he has made you his, his people. Number two, do not be surprised when the world reviles you. We can't live surprised when the world starts hating Christians. As the world gets tighter uh, around Christianity, and it, and it kind of expands what is like uh, acceptable in society, we cannot be surprised. This is the way of our Lord. And this is what he has for his people. Number three, proclaim and warn everyone with the mindset that they are among the elect. Guys, we don't know who are among the elect. We don't have a clue and so we should not just go, is he among the elect? Is she among the elect? We proclaim to everyone, knowing that God calls through the preaching of his word. Faith comes by hearing and hearing the words of Christ. So we go and we proclaim the word of God. And, and anybody who is a part of the foreknowledge of God, who knew God and God, or excuse me, who God knew from the foundation of the world, will be called out of darkness and into his marvelous light. In fact, uh, we should be the greatest evangelists in the world. We should not be lazy. We should not sit around going, if God already knows who's saved, then let's do nothing. No, no, no. We don't know who's saved, therefore we go out and we proclaim the gospel. And then one final application as we begin this book of 1 Peter. If you were to ask, you know, how often do you, how long do you spend in quiet time? How long do you spend in your devotion? Most people would say 15 to 20 minutes. That's exactly how long it takes to read First Peter. I would encourage you to begin reading First Peter every day as we go through this book. And the themes of the book and the spirit of God will begin to anchor our hearts in true hope and a true identity while we live in this exile known as earth as we await our King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have loved us before we loved you. You have called us out of darkness in, into marvelous light. You have sent us your spirit and you have provided us your son. Father, we have hope in every circumstance that we find ourselves in today because of such truth. God, we might not be selected by this world, but God, we have been chosen by you. God, would you call people out from the city of Irving who don't know you today? God, would we be faithful to bring the gospel to them? God, would you work in anybody's heart today that might not know you? Would you open up and allow them to see the kingdom of heaven? Man cannot pry open the doors, but you can. God, would you work and move and have your way? In the name of Christ we pray, amen.